Hey, this is the last coffee house. We are doing the second part: Black Rednecks and White Liberals. This is the Ben Shapiro reading list by Thomas. The Ben Shapiro reading list is by Thomas Sowell. The book Black Rednecks and White Liberals is by Thomas Sowell. So make sure we're clear on that. Again, this is part two. Part one was in the other part. It was part one. Uh, this is part two. We're talking about first Black education. And remember, this book is really looking at the roots of different cultural practices amongst Black Americans where those things came from and it has even wider much wider import than that is just okay where do different cultural practices come from and therefore giving us an idea of what we need to attack when it comes to making sure everybody's living their their best healthiest life and being the best contributors they can be to themselves their lives their families their communities and the wider community at large Okay, so 1890s, we had this Dunbar High School, and this high school was just churning out a bunch of very well-qualified and well-adjusted students. They did a study. They tried to figure out, okay, is it just because they're a bunch of middle class? They thought it must be a bunch of middle class people going to this school. So that's the reason that they are doing so well. That they're just, they're coming from good stock or whatever. But it turned out that it was mostly lower classes. There were a lot of lower class students who were going to the school. And when they were coming out, they were doing very, very well. And the school was all black. So it was highly successful black citizens were coming out of it. You know, doctors, lawyers, etc. Uh, you had the first black many things uh, like uh, federal court justices and and that sort of thing. And it wasn't really clear at the time. You, you didn't really know, okay, why is this particular school is churning out all these really, really good students no matter their background. But then you had the whole issue of racial integration. It just became the only cry at a certain point that you couldn't have segregated schools. You couldn't have primarily one race in a school. And when we think about these issues, I mean, this is something that comes up a lot, is that you would think, okay, on the surface, the very surface of something, you would say that this is a bad thing, you know, something like having segregated schools. And so you'd think, okay, what do we need to do? And you'd think racial integration, let's, let's mix everybody. <laughs> but in that cry and that push for the integration, the quick integration, people didn't care what happened to Dunbar, you know, Dunbar that had this incredible track record. So anyway, over time, you, you end up with racial segregation anyway because of just broad demographic trends. But one thing that Seoul put, points out is that it's not about like the per-pupil spending. It's not about money. It's not about throwing money at these kinds of educational institutions. Per-pupil spending is among the highest in D.C., and yet the scores are among the lowest. Throwing money at schools doesn't work. There are many more important cultural things that need to be addressed. So Dunbar itself became a symbol of elitism among blacks in general. And then after this lengthy court battle, the, the old Dunbar building was destroyed. And then you have uh, burgeoning racial disparities when it comes to education. Now, obviously those things aren't exactly directly <laughs> uh, causational or anything like that, but uh, the Thomas Hole is putting uh, this broader perspective on the way that education worked and has worked and should work. So there were like uh, principals in these primarily Mexican-American schools who would ignore results, you know, things that got better test scores and better behavior and all that sort of thing. They would ignore those things to institute some kind of an ideology. And when you look at all the different schools and what things worked in different schools, it was the old-fashioned ideas. <laughs> it was just directed instruction. Like there's a, I don't think it was called Portland Elementary, but it might have been a school in Portland. 
who made sure to have the old-fashioned directed instruction and rather than just leaving it open to students you know there's this kind of movement and we read Carl Rogers about this kind of a thing where it's this more empathetic kind of instruction and more inclusive instruction open instruction rather than directed instruction and you have these other elementary schools like this one in particular they had tests every seven to eight days they had a test to test what people were learning in Cascade Elementary in Atlanta they kept coming out with these really good reading and math scores and so there's a question okay why are they doing so well in reading and math and it turned out that the principal had instituted these old-fashioned learning <laughs> directives directed learning directed instruction and there's this <laughs> this awesome policy of that if a student had a behavior issue at issue at school then they would escort the student to the parents place of work so then they stopped having behavioral issues <laughs> when it came to the students <laughs> But a lot of schools would have these weekly tests every Friday. You know, I remember being in school and we didn't have that many tests. You know, we'd have a pop quiz occasionally in some classes. But a lot of these schools would have tests every Friday to review the things that you learn during the week. And Sol points out that according to the literature, you know, at least his interpretation of it and the things that he's read from it, is that the secret ingredient when it comes to education are just old-fashioned work and discipline. Those are the things you need. You need to make sure that these students are directed. And it doesn't matter who is doing the directing or what the facilities look like you know how underfunded they claim to be or whatever else it's it's those secret ingredients of the work and the discipline that get results okay myths and tragedies so one thing that Sol points out is that segregated schools it's a myth that segregated schools can't be fair that the the studies and literature does not support that hypothesis and that increasing faculty diversity doesn't actually matter it's not something <laughs> according to the evidence it's not something that matters the race and gender roles of the people who are teaching don't actually matter and brings up this idea of an anti-intellectual black subculture and that's something that really has me concerned because generally when I was reading all the literature about this stuff I was more on the side of biological determinism it, it just seems like so much is determined by that but there are obviously it's never going to be 100% either way and the way that I explain this is that it necessarily has to be 100% biological it's just you have your biology and that's acted upon by other things so your biology is just a range of responses to external stimuli so when it comes to education you're going to have a starting point and then you're going to have then you're going to have the elasticity of your responses to whatever external stimuli but this anti-intellectual culture just seems to be something that is much more broadly subscribed to in the united states right now than just the simple enclaves you know like he's pointing out specific enclaves in black subculture that has an anti-intellectualism but it seems like this is something that's being just imported just broadly in american culture which is really concerning right now especially when you go on twitter or something like that Another issue culturally was acting white, the acting white attack. And I know Candace Owens just talked about this. So if somebody acts in a particular way that they associate with whiteness, that's something like the, the National Museum of African American Culture would associate with whiteness. Unbelievable. If nobody has seen this, there was this chart that was put out by the the National Museum, you know, in D.C. of African American Culture that associated all these, that said these things were whiteness and include things like punctuality, like hard work, like the nuclear family like capitalism you know those kinds of things were associated with whiteness they just said those things are whiteness pure insanity i mean obviously these are cultural things that anybody can do and that many cultures do not uh, notwithstanding whatever their skin color is 
but pure insanity. So anyway, but he's saying that, okay, they associate certain things like using proper grammar or being punctual or <laughs> working hard, doing well academically. They would associate these things with acting white and say that's a, a, that's a pejorative, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't be doing that. Oh, and then big idea here about history being abused for contemporary interests. This is something, obviously, we see it constantly right now with the 1619 Project, with everything that has to do with <laughs> with race or the development of the country, the Constitution, or anything else. It's this weird, bastardized, abused version of what our history is, and it's just being used to say that everything today in 2020 is absolutely horrendous, and it needs to be torn down and, and all that stuff, rather than trying to really understand what history is. There's little interest in history nowadays unless it supports a particular agenda. And then we shift into this idea that we talked about already about how things like ebonic speech patterns in black southern subculture that was inherited from, you know, the Celts and, and the south and, and western England and, and Scotland and Ireland and all those places. Ebonics and those speech patterns are actually from white southerners, white southern subculture. They're not from Africa. They're not something that's a particular black subculture it's something that they inherited from white southerners. So stop trying to force it and say that this is your culture. Stop trying to make that the case, that there's some kind of a inviolability to speaking in a particular way that was actually inherited from white southerners who were the worst representatives of being able to do things efficiently and effectively and being entrepreneurs and the best people in their community. Uh, he adds again that segregated schools have not been shown to be inferior. So there's this kind of, you know, anti, we can't have segregated schools, but that's not something that we should have an a priori problem with. It's something that could potentially work. Something like Dunbar is something that worked very, very well because it had the proper culture and it didn't matter that it was an all black school. They just did academics really, really well. History versus visions. So history enthralled to vision. So you have a vision of what history, what today is, and then you find that vision in historical things, historical practices or things that happen in history. And it leads to all sorts of bias, and then you want to have some kind of distorted history that is from a perspective of a particular group rather than just looking at history, what happened, and what things should be interpreted from history. The whole point is to gain a contemporary political advantage, not to understand something, understand facts or something like that. And importantly, whole peoples are more than just the injustices that they suffered. You know, very important. That's not what defines people, and they shouldn't be defined in that way. And then when we look at history in this way, just to use it in, in for political purposes today, we are forfeiting valuable knowledge that could be extremely useful today that could help millions of people. When you misrepresent what history is and what happened in history, then you're not paying attention to the things that you really need to pay attention to that could be very useful. You know, it'd be something like saying that schools just need more funding instead of looking at what has been actually effective in schools and using those cultural practices to make sure students do better or saying we just need more social programs when looking at history it was it was the social programs that lead to generational poverty instead of bringing people out of that it makes people dependent on the system okay history and causation and here we talk about how many groups have risen in a generation from poverty to wealth there would be Asian immigrants who were struggling at home, but then they come here and they flourish. And one thing he points out here is that uh, he challenges people, you know, you can name a bunch of black leaders in this country. Try to name an Asian or like a Chinese or an Indian leader uh, that has come up in this country. 
And notwithstanding that, both of those groups do better than white Americans when it comes to any given societal metric. Many have excelled without power to oppress or suppress anyone. Disparities exist all over the world, and you can't attribute all those disparities to slavery. Europeans themselves will have very different lives depending on where they live in Europe. And when you advance a contemporary vision of history, you're doing so with a contemporary agenda. So it's really important to understand really where these disparities come from. The West in history. So there's a real culture war in the West. History is a crucial battleground of this culture war. The sins of the human race are not peculiar sins of Western civilization. And the whole idea that no one is objective, you hear this so often now, that it's just this weird acceptance of it. It's not a solace. It's not something that you get to just rely on to say that no one is objective, so therefore I can be totally biased. Just imagine a mathematician saying that. The whole idea of we can't, if we can't completely eliminate bias, then we should just celebrate it is not correct. We should always be trying to eliminate bias. Even if we're imperfect at doing so, we need to be doing it all the time. And taking sides encourages collectivization and deciding that people are foremost members of groups instead of individuals. The whole idea of role models, and I think we've talked about this before, but the whole idea of, of role models who have to look like you or be the same gender or whatever is not just false, but pernicious. I totally agree with this. It specifically emphasizes that we should be looking at group membership first, and we shouldn't be doing that. It should not matter, and that, that was never a problem. You know, when Michael Jordan was inspiring people all over the world, it wasn't a problem. They said, oh, wait, he doesn't look like me, therefore... It shouldn't matter if it's Michael Jordan or Albert Einstein. It shouldn't matter what they specifically look like. And it, we should specifically fight against that urge to say that, well, I need somebody who looks like me. An important point here, blacks were not uniquely submissive to slavery. This is something that occurred all over the world. There were slave rebellions amongst all the peoples who were enslaved at any given time. And it's not some unique blight on black Americans or anybody else in the history of the world because slavery happened in a certain way in the United States. Then there's this idea that he wants to undermine genetic determinism here. I, I think there's a lot of good ways to argue this. But he talks about how at Dunbar there were a lot of high IQ students that come, came from poverty who would have likely otherwise been considered low IQ students or would have otherwise had low IQs if they didn't have this particular culture to grow up in. And then there's the Flynn effect. The Flynn effect is that over time, people have increased their IQ. So generation after generation, as you go through generations, their IQs have increased. If we were perfectly genetically deterministic, then you would expect IQs to be stable over time. They wouldn't be increasing. Now, of course, there are a whole bunch of other questions that go around this. Um, as far as I've seen, the Flynn effect is actually not effective anymore. <laughs> it's been declining more recently. So what would happen is that you would have a kind of a carrying capacity of IQ. You would have a carrying capacity of IQ wherein the entire human population would reach a certain threshold. Okay, once you have that much comfort, then you can't have IQ increasing anymore. You don't have any more elasticity to increase IQ. And it seems that we've plateaued now. Once people have general access to food and safety and security and all that sort of thing, then you're not going to have significant impacts on, on IQ, no matter what you do with them. Now, again, when it comes to IQ, and what the literature seems to suggest is that it is pretty fixed. It is mostly genetic. 
and there's not a whole lot that you can do about it <laughs> when it comes to trying to improve or having your IQ decline. These are from a bunch of identical twin studies that are put in different situations. Of course, there are millions of things that you have to consider still, you know, when it comes to how your peers are going to treat you. If you're an identical twin, then you're going to look pretty much the same. And you wonder how much that socialization would impact based on just plain attractiveness, you know, or something like that. Uh, just how people are going to treat you based on that. So there are a whole bunch of questions, but I... I take the point here trying to undermine genetic determinism. Obviously, it'd be better in general if we weren't genetically predetermined to be a certain intelligence and have a certain lot in life. It would be better because then the things that we try to do, all the spending that we, <laughs> we do, would be useful and wouldn't be a complete waste of time. But then he goes on to this and kind of conclusively here say, it's absolutely ridiculous that babies enter the world with prepackaged grievances against each other. You know, whether it comes to white or black or whatever, these pre prepackaged grievances between babies is absolutely insane. We have this weird thing of blocking reality and sealing ourselves off from reality when it comes to trying to understand the past and figure out what the real problems are today. So that's that's pretty much what's in the book. And Jesus, I mean, there's so much I just like about this book. There's so many good ideas. There's, like I said, from the beginning, he makes sure to couch what he's saying and say that there are the application of the things that he's arguing has certain limitations. He calls it out when it's just correlation versus causation. He puts a lot of work into trying to understand what is actually true. And like I said, the most important thing that Thomas Hole does is give you a whole bunch of tools to be able to go out there and change challenge whatever ideas you want to challenge, whether it's his ideas or anybody else's ideas. He's saying this is how you go through a process of trying to figure out the real answer to something. So I think, like I said, uh, I think genetic determinism is probably a pretty important thing, but he really convinced me on a lot of these points when it comes to the inheritance of culture. There were a whole bunch of things that he talked about where it's unlikely that you just had people shuffling properly, you know, who had the, the right IQ, who just shuffled properly into the subculture, southern subculture versus the northern subculture when it came to black Americans. It, it would be really weird that everybody just shuffled the right way when it came to their genetic IQ. <laughs> It just seemed like there were a lot of cultural things that really impacted how they were going to progress and how they did when it came to inheriting southern white subculture that had all these bad characteristics and inheriting northern white subculture that had all these great characteristics. And then you just have, you know, respectively, you have the Southern culture that just does horribly and is crime riddled and, and then migrates to places like Detroit and Chicago. And then you have the Northern culture that the only thing they share with that black subculture from the South is the skin color. And they get as affected by this immigration, you know, when it came to increases in crime and all that as anybody else. And they go on to do amazing things and just be, you know, entrepreneurs and doctors and lawyers and, and just extremely high-functioning people in society with healthy families and intact families and all that stuff. I think there's really something to be said about the way that these cultural practices being spread throughout communities, the uh, way that these affect them. There's no way that something, a meme like don't respect the police or uh, believe that the police are always going to be attacking you, whatever the statistics say, or being anti-intellectual or sa saying that certain things are white and using that as a pejorative, saying that, you know, acting white, quote-unquote, is a bad thing, rather than saying that this is just a general cultural practice that anybody can do, whether you're Asian or white or black or anybody, and that everybody does, you know, like being punctual or working hard. 
I mean, all that stuff. So uh, so there's a whole bunch going on when it comes to all that. But these are all bringing up way more interesting questions than anything that you hear right now in public discourse that just says, ah, it must be racism. There's so much racism all over the place. And then explaining no further about anything. <laughs> so uh, really, really excellent ideas. Big picture wise, I think this is a much better explanatory model when it comes to trying to understand, okay, why do we have these really negative cultural enclaves of people with a particular skin color? And really important to point out that it's it's not about skin color. It really is not about skin color. Uh, there are African immigrants, there are Caribbean immigrants, uh, people from the West Indies or whatever, who get into the, the United States and and outperform the native black population and often the native population in general. So it's not about skin color. There are cultural practices that we need to get back into effect, that we need to maintain and spread throughout all these communities and and just have it be a concerted effort that this is what we're going to do. You know, it needs to start with more grassroots communities around, but it needs to be emphasized, you know, the pro-intellectualism, <laughs> pro-academics, pro-school, pro, you know, supporting family and being there for family, all these things that that would be positive. We need to try to get those things just injected into all these communities and see how that works out long term. Then we don't have to worry about genetic determinism. We don't have to worry about, you know, the, the differential scores on IQ tests and all that kind of thing. We, we can see that there are effects being made. And hopefully, I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. If you spread enough cultural practices around, then people are just going to do, do well if they have the right cultural practices that they're espousing. So anyway... Sorry, it's really early in the morning, and I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to knock this out. So I'm sorry if I, I sounded a little stunted rather than as fluid and incredible, you know, my speech patterns are usually. But I really appreciate you listening to this one. This is, I mean, one of my favorite books that we've read so far. I, I loved going through it. I love learning about this stuff. And I'm not going to pitch you anything. I really appreciate you listening. I hope you have a good rest of your week. I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye. <laughs>